0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my tireless colleague Kelly Vlahos as we try to shed some light on the causes of our government's many past and ongoing foreign policy failures. This week we'll be talking to Anel Shiline of the Quincy Institute about the Saudi-Iranian normalization agreement, sign his role in brokering it and the implications for the region and for U.S. policy. Before we do that, there have been some other things happening in the world that deserve closer scrutiny. Last week, the President appeared alongside the Prime Ministers of the U.K. and Australia to announce the details of the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine deal – it was originally reached back in 2021. Under the terms of the deal, the U.S. will initially station some of its submarines at Australian ports, beginning in a few years, and then it will sell Australia some of its Virginia-class submarines in the years after that, and then if all goes as planned, Australia will purchase their own AUKUS submarines later in the 2040s. Chinese government was predictably angry about the arrangement and accused the three partner governments of fueling an arms race. Some governments in Southeast Asia, including Indonesia and Malaysia, remain wary of the deal, and they are worried about the implications for their region— and many Pacific nations are concerned about the use of any nuclear technology in their part of the world because of their experience with U.S. and French nuclear testing. In the U.S., there has been very little debate over the wisdom or necessity of this arrangement. Uh, So what do you think, Kelly? Is AUKUS the right thing for the U.S. to be doing, and what might some of the downsides be?
1: I mean, if I was um, a sub-manufacturer, a defense manufacturer, I'd think this is (laughs) quite a deal. I mean, we're talking how many subs? At least five.
0: Uh, yeah, five, five that we're going to sell to them, and then many more will be um, built down the road. Yeah,
1: right. Many more are built down the road with U.S. technology and assistance. So, I mean, as they say, the defense contracting industry is in the soup with this particular deal, uh, which is uh, it's going to last uh, decades. And so, I see they're the big winners here, obviously. Um, I I think the the losers are China because they feel the encroachment into their uh, sphere of influence, rightly so. And I feel like it puts other countries within that uh, sphere a a little bit on, a little bit, uh, I would say, nervous, uh, nervous posturing at this point. I mean, they are very pragmatic, it sounds like, and I'm, and I'm not an expert in the region, but like listening and reading other people who are much more attuned to what's going on there than I, is that these countries within China's region are pretty pragmatic. They understand that China is a threat. They have been on the other end of some bullying, particularly economic. Uh, bullying, um, but they don't necessarily want to poke them militarily. They want to keep trade relations. They want to keep engagements open. They want to be able to defend themselves if necessary, but they don't want to join. They don't want to go all in on a U.S. anti-China security um, block. And so there is this tension always. And I feel like deals like this Really rub against that balance. And so I think there's some general nervousness. Even Australia, the defense minister of Australia, Australia had to come out the other day and, and say, Hey, listen, just because we've signed this, this submarine deal does not mean that we are automatically on the hook to fight a war with China, with the U.S. if Taiwan is attacked. So he felt like he needed to expressly say that because the, the message that seems to be going out is that AUKUS, it has, is a purely secure, securitized agreement in which all of the convening nations have somehow pledged to defend Taiwan. And that's obviously not true, but that's the message that a lot of people in the region are getting.
0: Right. Well, and it's, because it's been framed so often in the coverage as as a principally anti-China measure, as being geared towards uh, containing China, opposing China, uh, you know, I, th- I think people do jump to that conclusion. Uh, and I mean, it's understandable why they jump to that conclusion, even though, as you say, it's that's not really part of the deal. That's not something that Australia has actually signed on to. It may be something that some people in Washington expect down the road, and and they may end up being quite disappointed. Uh, because as you were talking uh, about the there, there's a lot of uh, backlash in Australia uh to some of the details about the deal including the the price tag uh, which is quite hefty uh it's estimated to be about two hundred and forty five billion u s over the next thirty years and that's a, a huge undertaking for a country whose military spending is about uh, an eighth of that uh, every year uh so, and so of course, this is spread out over several decades but still it's a a huge investment that they're being expected to make and it's a very long-term commitment i was mentioning in the the summary that some of this stuff won't be coming online until 20 years from now and you know when has defense planning 20 years out ever actually come to fruition the way people expected it to so it's it's a, a big gamble on their part and it's it's also based on this fear of china i think i think an exaggerated fear of china at least as far as australia is concerned uh where they're they're gearing up or warming up for this confrontation or possible confrontation with china that may never come and and they're going to be straining their relationship with china in the meantime which is quite dangerous for them because australia like a lot of other countries uh, in the asia pacific Are, are very heavily integrated economically with China and, and really can't afford to antagonize them. But Australia is sort of putting itself out on on the limb to do that. Uh, one of the things I think is really concerning about the way this deal was reached is that it was, it was basically worked out among the three governments, the US, British, and Australian, with, with very little uh, consultation with the public, very little input coming from, from the respective, uh, keep holes uh, of these these three nations and i think that that's going to end up making it a lot more rickety as a as a project because people as people begin to realize how much this is going to cost and the commitments that can, may come with it uh they, they may start to bulk and so the, the consensus that everyone assumes is locked in now for decades uh, is probably not as strong as people think uh and in terms of u.s interests i think it's a a troubling deal in another way because it it again emphasizes a military first approach to the Asia Pacific, uh, which is already which is already a problem for the way that we deal with this part of the world. We we don't really have economic statecraft uh, that you can speak about in uh, dealing with Southeast Asia or the Pacific Island, Pacific Island nations. Uh, it's everything is uh, focused on security and military power projection. Uh, and, and everything is defined in those terms, and and Locus does that in spades. And so I, I think that's it's really taking us farther down the wrong path uh, when we need to be getting towards a more balanced approach. Um, there, there are also nonproliferation concerns about this arrangement uh, because Australia is a non-nuclear weapons state, but it will be uh, gaining access to nuclear, weapon, nuclear power technology that has previously only been held by other nuclear weapon states, uh, and they will be getting highly enriched uranium to run the reactors for these subs, uh, which creates potential concerns about uh, setting a precedent that other states could follow, uh, or getting access to highly enriched uranium for the purposes of generating power, but then could be diverted to create weapons uh, under the cloak of of setting up. Uh, production of naval vessels. Uh, so do you think the risk of undermining the nonproliferation regime is worth taking uh, in exchange for potential security benefits that come from this deal?
1: Personally, no. Um, but I think if you ask members of the administration, they're going to balk at the, the whole idea that this is somehow rubbing up Against the Non-Proliferation Treaty, they'll just say, "Hey, this is about um, this isn't about weapons. These are nuclear-powered subs." I and and you know, and I I agree that there's this weird gray zone that that exists and that could set a precedence for other states, uh, some maybe more nefarious states at some point using the loophole. Uh, to transfer uranium um, under the guise of uh, non-weapons uses. So, yeah, I agree that that's an issue. Um, You know, talking about uh, the other things that are involved in this announcement, this deal, uh, when we reported about this uh, a year ago when it was first announced, you'd be surprised uh, what didn't get as much ink is the fact that the United States and the United Kingdom um, are going to be helping to build these nuclear submarines, but they're also um, going to be building particularly the U.S. troop presence in Australia um, and, and further collaborations or extend their existing collaborations on cyber, AI, quantum technologies, um, a lot of um, collaboration in the military sphere That, uh, hadn't occurred before. That's all included in this particular AUKUS announcement beyond this, the submarine. So I, I get why Australians are, are nervous. And, um, there's been a, a a bit of a backlash there because this is just sort of increasing the United States footprint in, into, onto their territory and into their world. And, um, I, I find that troubling. Like you, Dan, that there wasn't any public buy-in, which I'm not surprised. Um, but, you know, in, in addition to AUKUS, we have all of these other groupings that we have been um, contributing to over the last several years that are all designed for the same thing, to, to create this anti-China hedge. So you also have the QUAD. Which is U.S., India, Australia, and Japan. And then India, France, and Australia have their own grouping. Um, and then the U.S., Japan, India have a, have their own thing going on. Uh, then you have the ASEAN group, which ASEAN's not supposed to be a security organization. And I, and I, I get that, that the U.S. has a very limited, if any, real role in that. But, you know, security does come up at these meetings and China always seems to be on the back foot and they realize it. And so when we say, oh, China is, you know, lashing out, China is doing this, China's having flyovers here or, or, um, trying to check, uh, U.S. warships there, it's because they're feeling the heat that we are creating in the region. And this is just, uh, AUKUS is just one more, um, Level of that that heat that that we're putting upon them, in my mind.
0: And I, I think that's right. And I think we the the warnings that are coming from them and from other states in the region about uh, an intensifying arms race are are correct. I mean, there 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 already is an arms race going on, uh, but but this seems sure to encourage more of the same, and and it's it's concerning because. That will keep propelling us towards a collision between this growing anti-China bloc uh, and China uh, at some point in the future, and and that's that's a con a conflict that none of us can afford. That would be disastrous for the entire Pacific and and for the world. And so it's it's concerning that we're we're sort of barreling ahead with these containment measures without thinking through what it is we're we're actually hoping to achieve with that containment. I mean, do we think that we're going to bottle them up in their part of the world indefinitely until their government collapses like the Soviets did? I I don't think that's likely to happen. And so, what what are we actually hoping to achieve? Uh, I, and so I'm I'm very wary and and concerned about this uh, heavy emphasis on containment and rivalry that we've seen in the last few years because, uh, It's it's in the history of great power relations that that usually leads to very bad places. Our guest today is Annelle Scheleim. She is a research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute and a non-resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Welcome back to the show again.
2: Thank you for
0: having me back yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure and uh, look forward to talking with you again today. Uh, so the the news from the Middle East uh, that has caught everyone's attention of course is the resumption of normal diplomatic ties or the agreement that Saudi Arabia and Iran will resume normal diplomatic ties and the the agreement was brokered by China uh, which turned uh, quite a few heads as well uh, One of the interesting possible uh, side effects of that is what what effect it may have on Yemen. Uh, of course, the, the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran has helped to f- fuel and prolong that conflict, uh, even though it was not the cause of the conflict. Uh, what, what effect do you think normalization between the Saudis and Iran uh, may have on Yemen?
2: Well, you know, it's it's certainly good news for Yemen. Um, this certainly won't make things worse in Yemen. But I do think it's important to not set expectations too high because doing so reiterates this notion that the conflict in Yemen was primarily a proxy war, which is inaccurate. You know, the, the Houthis predated, uh, the Saudi led military intervention that now we're coming up on the eight year anniversary of that intervention. Um, you know, the, the Iranians have offered support to the Houthis, but, They, you know, had allied with former President Ali Abdullah Saleh and so had access to massive amounts of weapons that the U.S. had actually shipped to Saleh's government in the context of the war on terror. Um, So this notion that just because the Iranians and Saudis are working to normalize and hopefully um, stop fighting each other uh, across the region while, while it's it's. Excellent news. Unfortunately, the dynamics in Yemen are such that, um, you know, the Houthis don't take orders from Tehran. The Houthis may choose um, that that they are going to continue to pursue uh, a military approach to Saudi Arabia. Although... um, Again, we have seen in Yemen the the durability of this truce, which expired in October, but has continued to hold. We haven't seen the Houthis firing any transporter projectiles, and there have been rumors of a possible deal wherein the Saudis agree to fully withdraw, and the Houthis agree uh, in to to a long term cessation of of any sort of transporter attacks, and that that was being negotiated independent of of sort of the iranian Saudi relationship um, so again this this is certainly good news but again the um, unfortunately what we may end up seeing in Yemen is if if it transitions away from an internationalized conflict and returns to merely a civil war we may still see bloodshed unfortunately among these various factions um, vying for control inside of Yemen
0: sure although I think well one thing that we've we have seen over the last 8 years is that the the more uh, outside actors have been involved the, the worse it has been uh, or it has made that conflict worse than it was and so uh, it may it may at least point towards a uh, having a moderating effect on on how severe the conflict is um, we may hope we absolutely. may hope absolutely and um,
2: You know, unfortunately, what we may end up seeing is now the possibility of the the Saudi Emirati rivalry playing out in Yemen. You know, that dynamic is already visible in the makeup of the Presidential Leadership Council, um, four members of which are Saudi-backed, four members of which are Emirati-backed. The Saudis and Emiratis have a very different agenda for what they would like to see coming out of Yemen. So. Although again, it's it's great that Iran may be pushing the Houthis um, to hold up their end of a of a deal to not bombard the Saudis. Um, we may see other other sort of international meddling again in the in the form of this Saudi Emirati rivalry.
0: Sure, and uh, what well, one angle that has come up in reporting the last few weeks is that the the Saudis have been pressing uh, the U.S. To to get a security guarantee. Of course, this is in the context of of a different normalization deal or possible normalization deal, that being uh, the one with Israel. Uh, How concerned are you that the Biden administration might oblige your request for a security guarantee uh, in connection with some sort of Saudi-Israeli deal?
2: Well, in some ways, that's the framework with which I understand the Iran-Saudi normalization under Chinese auspices. I think it may have been The Saudis sending this very clear signal to Biden that, look, if you don't give us what we want in the form of these various concessions under uh, a normalization with Israel, and those concessions include a U.S. security guarantee, perhaps taking the form of the Saudis receiving major non-NATO ally status, as well as easier access to weapons, sales um, and support for a civilian nuclear energy program. This is, these are all the things the Saudis demand if they're going to, um, normalize with Israel. Notably, none of those things have anything to do with Palestine. Um, the, but, but if the U.S. is not prepared to meet those demands, the Saudis have, have demonstrated they have other options. They're going to, you know, pursue this normalization with Iran under the auspices of China. Um, this was very well played by Mohammed bin Salman. Um, because he, he can't lose, really, you know, either on the one hand, he gets to normalize with Iran and hopefully um, be dealing with fewer security concerns uh, driven by sort of Iranian involvement in various conflicts from Lebanon to Syria to Iraq to Yemen. Um, and to strengthen uh, China's hand and um, sort of give China the the international um, A claim and, and recognition that, that China seeks. Or, uh, on the other hand, if the, if Biden does decide to, to grant these Saudi concessions, then it gets what it wants in terms of this ironclad security guarantee and the various benefits, um, related to sort of, normalization with Israel having to do with access to sort of more surveillance technologies, tourism, and all of that would also be in keeping with his Vision 2030. Although if that were to occur, um, MBS might then be dragged into uh, an, a war between, <laughs> between Israel and Iran, uh, where Israel would expect its its um, Arab partners to uh, line up and, and fight alongside it.
0: Well, I think that it's an interesting... Part of the story where just a few years ago, you had Mohammed bin Salman talking about uh, Iran in very uh, almost almost deranged terms, comparing them to the Nazis, talking about how we're going to take the fight into Iran. Uh, And and obviously now he – I think it seems like he's recognized that that approach is a dead end as far as Saudi security is concerned because everything he's been doing over the last several years has has made Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia less secure than it was. Uh, whether it's inviting attacks from, from the Houthis or inviting attacks from Iranian drones on Saudi oil facilities. So he, it seems like he he would be uh, especially wary of getting drawn into uh, an actual military coalition against Iran uh, because he's already sort of tried that approach and it's backfired on him, right?
2: Certainly, right. And this is all in the context of Vision 2030, these massively ambitious Promises he's made to his population that if he fails to deliver by this looming deadline, um, there are questions about to what extent he would continue to have support. I mean, at, at present, despite his Um, really unprecedented levels of repression that he uses to prevent any kind of pushback from these massive changes he's implementing, he does still have widespread support, especially among the generation of kind of Saudi millennials, many of whom studied abroad and want Saudi Arabia to to be a normal country, as they say, to to open up to the rest of the world. Um, And so he needs conditions of stability and foreign direct investment. Um, He needs tourists, he needs Uh, these massive um, construction projects to all move forward and very quickly, if he's going to be able to keep these promises um, and maintain the the public support that thus far he does, for the most part, appears to continue to enjoy. Um, And so you're absolutely right that under, under those sorts of pressures, it does make a lot more sense to try to neutralize rivals and adversaries to um, pursue reconciliation um, it was interesting to, to notice some of the ways that the Saudi commentariat responded um, to the, the sort of international shock <laughs> under which this normalization agreement was announced, because you had op-ed pages saying things like, well, but he's, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been talking about neighborliness towards Iran, f- you know, for for quite a while now, you know, sort of just forgetting about, as you said, this this notion that we're going to take the fight to Iran or and, and, the you know, the really bellicose rhetoric. Um, but it, but it, precisely as you pointed out, the, the Saudis found that that more aggressive foreign policy was becoming increasingly costly. Was risking crucial infrastructure, things like the the Houthis targeting Aramco facilities. We saw um, again, exact almost exactly a year ago, a, a Houthi um, projectile that hit this facility outside of Jeddah massive cloud of smoke in the air over one of Saudi's main population centers right before a formula one race, which, you know, big high profile international event was supposed to occur. Um, and it's under those conditions that we saw this now uh, lasting truce be implemented, that it was when the Houthis demonstrated that they could really hurt the Saudis, the Saudis decided, okay, it's, we're, we're now, we really mean it. We want to get out of this conflict and we're willing to do um, to sort of meet Houthi demands, things like opening the Sanaa airport, for example, um, and allowing fuel to get into Hodeida port. Um, that was the, the first time we'd really seen the Saudis meeting some of these Houthi demands, which is why we've seen the truce lasting and, and continuing to last at present.
1: Thank you, Anel, for, for coming on. I'm so glad to have you back here at Crashing the War Party. Um, I must ask, how... Does the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, the American response to it, the Western response to it, how has that impacted geopolitics in this region, whether it be Saudi Arabia or UAE or other Arab states? Has it freed them up to um, engage in these diplomatic uh, activities with more leverage How has their relationships with the United States possibly changed? Um, You know, can you shed some light on whether or not there there is a ripple effect coming uh, from that direction?
2: Oh, definitely. You know, I think at at the level of sort of um, geopolitical leverage, the, the increase in the price of oil, the sanctions on Russian oil, just the general Pressures on the energy market globally have certainly increased the the leverage of these major oil exporters like Saudi Arabia um, to the extent that that apparently the Biden administration is considering reneging on its commitment to end sales of offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. You know, he Biden announced soon after coming into office that he was going to end sales of offensive weapons and only allow defensive weapons. And there's been a lot of question about well, how do you actually distinguish those and what counts. Um, but evidently, under under these energy pressures, they may get rid of any sort of distinction altogether. Wow, and
1: that's just amazing!
2: Resume, yeah, normal, you know, weapon sales as usual. Um, and you know, we've also seen. So the, sorry. So that that's at sort of the the geopolitical level, but just in terms of the the impact on the populations. Um, The increase in the global price of food, commodity prices, wheat prices, I mean, all these countries throughout the Middle East are major importers of grain in particular from Ukraine and Russia, and we've seen, especially in places like Yemen – just absolute devastation uh in terms of this skyrocketing food prices aid organizations can no longer afford to buy food aid for people they're having we're seeing we were already seeing drastic cuts following just in the context of covid um where countries just didn't really have the resources uh, left over to try to provide humanitarian assistance and then now with both the the pressure on energy markets and this high price of <clears throat> global food commodities it's, it's just been devastating for countries that are, are unfortunately very reliant on humanitarian assistance like Yemen. Um, so in addition to, to those, those two major factors, sort of concrete factors, you know, energy and food, um, I think there's also been an interesting shift in how we see these countries react to the United States, that they... You know, they that many not only the Arab Gulf partners, but countries across the global south that have expressed skepticism of Biden's claim to be defending the international order and protecting democracy. Um, you know, this week is the 20 year anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, when such considerations of the international order and international law were completely ignored by the Bush administration, by the United States. And a lot of these countries, I think, are just wondering why they would suddenly, you know, what, what benefit do, do they face for, for jumping on board with Russia, you know, sanctioning Russian oil, for example, or, or lining up to support um, Ukraine now when suddenly the U.S. says it cares about these kinds of things um, when 20 years ago it, the Bush administration very obviously did not, um, you know. Also, even more recently, things like the the Pentagon um, resisting efforts by the International Criminal Court to hold Russians accountable for what they're doing in Ukraine because of this concern that that would set a precedent that maybe American military officials could also likewise be held accountable. I mean, it's it's just ludicrous the extent to which the U.S says one thing when it suits our interests and does something else and yet expects other countries to follow along with these rules. Again, when, when it, it, you know, when it, when it goes along with the U S agenda. And so I do think it's, it's not at all surprising that we'd see a lot of other countries um, including big and powerful countries like India saying, or, or if not saying, but but certainly behaving uh, in a way that demonstrates that that they are unconvinced by America's sudden uh, expressed conviction for these these sorts of um, international laws and norms, um, because everyone knows that if you know if if circumstances changed and suddenly the U.S. didn't feel like being constrained, um, none of these international kinds of um, uh, agreements or or norms would 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 stop the U.S. from pursuing
1: its agenda. Whatever happened to last summer? Maybe it was closer to September. I can't remember now. Before the election, when Biden was so peeved at MBS for not um, for not staving off, uh, was it opening up production, the OPEC production, and yes. and he didn't do that, and he expressly asked him to in that visit, that now famous fist bump. Visit And he and the Democrats say, well, you know, we're going to have to rethink, we're going to have to revisit our relationship with Saudi because of this. Gas prices went down, the election, the Democrats won, surprisingly, all around. Is that why we're not hearing anything from the Democrats anymore about revisiting? And if anything, we're hearing the Biden administration say, well, maybe we will give offensive <laughs> Uh, weapons. I mean, it seems like that's the only thing they're rethinking is how many more weapons that they can give them.
2: Exactly. No, right. No. This this happened in the context of you know Biden had had after saying he was going to make MBS a pariah, ultimately deciding he was going to go ahead and meet with him. As you said, that infamous fist bump. And and then subsequently, the Saudis announced that they were going to cut oil production at a time when we know we later learn the White House had asked them to to raise production such that the price of the pump wouldn't be too high when Americans went to vote for the midterms, which is something Saudis uh, have done occasionally in the past at the request of U.S. presidents um, and MBS saying That's not in the interests of Saudi Arabia, Um, lower gas, oil prices. uh, You know, we're sticking to these OPEC plus um, commitments. You know, Saudi Arabia um, was was the state that, you know, that that bullied a lot of other member states to um, implement these um, production limits. And so for the Saudis to suddenly switch and and um, increase production as as Biden wanted them to. Um, I mean, it really, it just doesn't make sense from the perspective of Saudi interests, Um, but many did see it as a means um, for MBS to really stick it to Biden. And then, as you said, all the the hullabaloo in Congress, um, you know, statements coming from the White House, about having to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship all sort of evaporated once the Democrats were not destroyed in the midterms as they feared. Um, And, you know, now... We haven't heard much from Congress, but there there is one interesting development, which is that Senator Murphy and Senator Lee have introduced a privileged resolution um, under Provision 502B of the Foreign Affairs or the Foreign Assistance Act, um, which which would potentially require a report on the human rights um, record of Saudi Arabia. And if there, if it is found, as likely would be found, um, a consistent pattern of gross human rights violations, this could then trigger um, Congress to to end all security assistance to Saudi Arabia. They this this is under this existing law. However, this has never previously been used. Um, this has been on the books since the 1970s. Um, And was only ever invoked once to request reports, but then at that time, you know, these were reports into countries like Argentina and Iran and other places in the context of the Cold War where the U.S. was supporting um, deeply repressive governments uh, and their targeting of leftists in the, you know, in in the name of fighting communism. Um, and, and it has never been used since. Uh, and so we know, um, back in 2019, Senator Murphy and Senator Young did invoke 502B, but then didn't sort of actually force a vote on it. And the question is this time, would Murphy and Lee actually follow through on, on what this law stipulates? Um, and this this could be transformative because not only, you know, it could set a precedent not only in terms of the U.S.-Saudi relationship and ending U.S. security assistance to the Saudis. There are countries all around the world that commit gross violations of human rights. I'm thinking about Israel in particular, um, Egypt. Uh, I mean, countries all around the Middle East in particular, um, but elsewhere as well, that... Um, Ostensibly, if if the political will were there, I mean, Congress still has to pass these things, um, but it it would it would really it could potentially really transform uh, so U.S. security assistance, which which would be in keeping with what Biden says he wants. You know, in the context exactly. of Ukraine, even before Ukraine, he you know in his in his drumbeat of war with China is trying to frame the U.S. as promoting human rights, promoting democracy. And so this this would be a question, um, you know, Biden might try to veto it, but that would that would certainly um, really give lie to his stated commitment to the U.S. role as allegedly being committed to the protection of human rights and the promotion of democracy.
0: And we're almost out of time. I just had one last question. I'm, I'm just curious about this. Uh, you know, the, the region quite well. Uh, and uh, a lot of has been made of china 's role in brokering these talks in the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but before they got involved, of course Iraq and Oman were both very heavily involved in facilitating negotiations and so uh, in your view, how important was Oman 's role in facilitating these talks and and sort of paving the way for normalization between them uh, and uh, has Oman's foreign policy changed noticeably since the new Sultan took over after his cousin's death?
2: So, you know, my understanding is that Iraq had had played the more significant role in initially sort of fostering these these meetings especially under Prime Minister Al-Kademi. Um but then once the Academy government well, al uh was no longer in office, my understanding is that it was the Omanis um as well as you know some other countries um I've heard. It's sort of unclear because I think a lot of countries are now trying to claim some credit. <laughs> Uh, for sure. being involved in this, but it you know it does signal the extent to which countries around the region um, and and more broadly have you know share an interest in in a reduction in antagonism between the Saudis and Iranians, as arguably the United States also shares an interest in that um, and so the fact that ultimately it was conducted in China was certainly nice for the chinese but i but I do agree that um, if not for the Iraqis and Omanis we would not have necessarily seen these talks get to a point where you then had this momentous announcement coming out of beijing um in terms of the the foreign policy under sultan haitham uh who took over from his cousin uh, sultan qaboos who passed away in, in early 2020 um after almost 40 years on the throne we haven't seen a, a much of a shift in terms of foreign policy some shifts have occurred the new um sultan has tried to um Outsource power a little bit. Caboose had really centralized power in himself, um, and so we have seen efforts by the sultan to sort of institutionalize more power, um, devolve certain powers that used to be centered in 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 the person of the sultan to other ministers, um, which I think is only only to the benefit of sort of the future functioning of the Omani state. Um, there was just recently this announcement um, of future and on uh, future economic. Um, partnership with Saudi Arabia, um, there are certain ways that I think Sultan Haitham has been more active in pursuing partnerships with countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which have historically had um, sometimes somewhat frosty relationship with Iran under, or with Oman under caboose, um, in part because of uh, Oman's uh, relationships uh, with other countries like Tehran, like Iran. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, so I, I do think this is all for Oman's benefit. Uh, Oman as a country, um, doesn't have a lot of oil resources and really does need to do everything it can to, to try to build up a more, um, diverse set of, uh, sources of economic income beyond oil. Um, so in, in general, I think Sultan Haitham has been, um, making needed decisions to, to try to move Oman's economy forward.
0: Uh, Thanks very much. And uh, we we are out of time now, but I wanted to thank you again for coming on Uh, Nell Schielein uh, of the Quincy Institute. Uh, Thanks very much.
2: Thank you so much. Great to speak with you as always. Thank you, Nell.
1: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.